Hey everyone, welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna. On today's episode, I'll be joined by Boz Rutten. Many of you probably already know who Boz is. He's a UFC Hall of Famer and former heavyweight champion of the world. He ended his career with 22 straight victories, something very few fighters can stake a claim to. In addition to his MMA career, Boz is also a TV personality, an actor, having starred in several movies, most notably alongside Kevin James in Here Comes the Boom. He's also a video game star, which anyone who recalls Grand Theft Auto will certainly remember. And he's also a businessman and an inventor, which we'll talk about in today's conversation. Hailing from Holland, Boz was named by Inside MMA as the fourth greatest MMA fighter of all time. He certainly is a renaissance man living out the American dream, but Boz's current passion revolves around helping people beat asthma. Many of you may not know this, that as a world-class professional athlete, before all the stardom, Boz had a real struggle with asthma. But now he's came up with a device and a strategy for people to get on the offensive against asthma and take control of their well-being. Today's episode is brought to you by my brand new book called What Should I Do With My Money? Economic Insights to Build Wealth Amid Chaos. Anyone who's read the book will know that there's four motives I talk about that are defined as mice, money, ideology, compromise, and ego. I'll talk with Boz about his take on those four motives and how they've guided him in his pursuit of wealth. And remember, we always define wealth on this show in its original meaning, a state of well-being. Without further ado, here's the champ, Boz Rutten. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Boom. Thank you, Brian. We're we're happy to have you, man. So you were just telling me earlier that uh, you came over to the States in 1997. So, you know, before you, you hit stardom, perhaps here in America, what was going through your mind on that trip over here? Uh, you know, I, I I made drawings of America when I was six years old. I still have the drawings. Nogi it was a bird, N-O-G-I, and he would fl- fly to America, you know, and I had these big pickup trucks, Buicks. I mean, I always had American cars. I was just mesmerized with America. I just loved it. So then, you know, when I started fighting in Japan and then eventually uh, I started beating UFC champions over in Japan. So then the matchmaker from the UFC came to Japan to watch me fight. And after a fight, he said, if I was interested to go to the UFC, like, okay, sure, I got three more fights under this contract. Let me wrap it up, which is fast because I fought a lot. Like people don't understand. Now they fight two, three times a year. I fought my first year, eight fights. My second year, nine fights. I mean, we we were going, I wasn't injured. I said, sign me up, let me fight again because it's money, right? <laughs> so those three fights that were gone within yeah, five, six months, and then uh, it was 1997. I moved to America to pursue the the, the American dream and uh, fight in the UFC. Yep, that's awesome. And did you view it at that time as like a um, like a business trip, or were you ready to to say you know America's going to be home? America's going to be home. I never thought I was going to come back. I, I had a lot of people doubting in Holland, and I go, you know, it's okay, you can doubt. I said, and but there's only one way to find out, and it's for me to go there and see if I can succeed. And if I can't succeed, I can always come back. You know, yeah. but I think it will be okay. And uh, and which is, you know, America is the, it's really the land of opportunities. Um, for every dollar I make it over in Europe, I make 10 for the same job, I make 10 here. 
you know, so really? you go like, well, it's uh, and a lot of Texas there, you know, it's, 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 it's a whole different, whole different system. So yes, I was very happy to move to America. Yeah, I bet. That's awesome. And so if we just kind of go back to the the genesis of all of this, I had read that your MMA journey began with sneaking into a Bruce Lee film. I think it was Enter the Dragon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Is that where it all started for you? Yeah, it was. You know, I was this uh, kid. I had a horrible skin disease. I, had, uh, I was the leper in school. That's what they called me. And uh, needless to say, I got bullied a lot. Um, so I spent my time in the forest. I was swinging treetops to treetops. We had a forest very close to my home, like literally hundred yards away. And, uh, and it was very good for me because I could climb a tree if the bullies would start chasing me. And I would I wait, wait till they climb up and I started swinging to the other tree and those kids <laughs> couldn't do it. You know, and there were like only four or five places in the, in the whole forest where I had to go down where the, where it was too much of a gap. But, you know, if I was in a certain spot, I could go 20, 25 trees, you know, so good luck in trying to catch me. <laughs> so that, I think that's where my athleticism comes from, because I was always doing that. I was also playing track and field at a high level, yeah. but the bullying, you know. And then when I went to saw the movie Bruce Lee, After the Dragon, I realized, wait a minute, if I'm like that guy, mm -hmm. I can handle the bullies, you know. So why wouldn't I uh, see if my parents allowed me to do martial arts? And it took me two years to convince them because they thought it was violence. Yeah. They're very conservative with my parents. And uh but then after two years they finally they 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 bent and they yep. said go because I kept asking. Yeah. And I was fortunate to be taken under the wing by a, by an adult who was dating my neighbor girl. She was a very beautiful girl, two girls there actually. And yep. he, he was the cool guy in town. Xavier was his name. And he took me to the adult classes. And from that moment everything went really fast. I started beating adults within months. And then yeah. I overheard these guys talking about me in the dressing room. So now I start getting confidence. And that led to my very first street fight with the biggest bully in my school. Oh, jeez. And, uh, and I How old were you when, when all this was happening? How old were you? Well, I was for 14. Yeah, okay. So just coming into the teen years. Yeah. yeah. Shouting at me on the bikes, bicycles passing me on the street. Hey, leper or something. And this time I shouted something back. And I heard them laugh and I looked. And sure enough, they started to chase me. And I go, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. So I put my bike on the stand. And I was just waiting for them. And they surrounded me with their bikes, <laughs> their <laughs> little kids. And uh, he came to the center yeah. and uh, tell, told me to hit him. So I did. And uh, I found out that bullies were not that strong. <laughs> it was one point. <laughs> the problem was, was his nose was broke. So the oh police my gosh. Out at the doorstep moment. That confirming, of course, for them, it was violence. Yeah. But this is the same thing. I always have to tell this. Like, I never told my mom and dad I was bullied. Because my mom had an enormous amount of work with me. Uh, she had to, we call it mummifying uh, every night. The, the whole family would send in old bed sheets. They would rip up to bandages and I would creams. And then I would rip it up in the middle of the night because it would itch so bad. I had a big stone next to my bed and I was hitting constantly because the itching is so insane. It was better to hurt yourself. But still, it would come off. She had to redo it again. So my mom had a lot of work with me and I figured if I'm going to wow. tell her I'm bullied, it's, it's going to really hurt her. So that's why I never said anything because if my dad would have known, I'm pretty sure he would have said, no, 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 we got to keep him on martial arts. But unfortunately, yeah. that was not the case. Uh, what was that? I mean, was that like eczema or what, if you don't mind? Eczema, what was... yeah. It was yeah. really weird because it was when I came out of the womb, I was complete, completely covered and then it, it disappeared within like weeks. And then we moved from a big city to a smaller town in Holland. And yeah. boom, it came back with a vengeance, man. And that together combined, that happens a lot, with asthma. So a severe asthma. Uh, every five weeks, a week in bed, not able to eat because I couldn't breathe. 
Um, and then and then eczema. So when the eczema was really bad, my asthma was good. And my my asthma was really bad, my eczema would be good. It, it, it's the other way around. So yeah. really bad asthma means less eczema and the other way around. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's yeah. that's crazy. And now like that incident that you mentioned with the bully, how long did that stick with you? And, and the reason that I'm asking, it's ironically, I just watched a documentary on Herschel Walker, um, you know, famous football player. And that's how it began. He said, you know, he was bullied as a kid for, for the way he looked, the way that he talked. And um, so the way that he responded to that was, well, I'm just going to do push-ups and sit-ups all day, every day until I'm ready. And then that kind of stuck with him through his whole career. Uh, did that? Did you have kind of a similar instance or did you then just move on to loving MMA? Oh, yeah. No, it was right away. First, by the way, Herschel, I interviewed him a few times. Amazing guy. Huh. Uh uh, what an athlete, man! It's <laughs> incredible. Yeah, and, and never touched the weight, all the push-ups, and, and if you look at the guy, I mean, he was fighting when he was like fifty years old. MMA. That's right. And, That's and, right. And, yeah, and two or three matches, new all of them. You know, so <laughs> with me it was the same thing. With me, it was like I knocked him out, but, but you know, over the years, a lot of kids have been bullying me, so now I needed to go after those guys, right? Yeah, uh, because now I realized, wait a minute, it's actually pretty easy for me, and people got scared, and I went, I had a list with all the names of all the bullies and I checked each and every one off. I went wow. after everybody. I always tell people, I say, don't mess with the bullies, man, because there's so guys out there like me, they will put you, or worse. Now you have shootings. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Unfortunately. And, yeah. and, and it's horrible because you, listen, you push a kid to, to, to the brink. It's uh it's a very scary. There was a moment in my, uh, that I was at school and these kids were messing with me. And I guess I saw a Tarzan movie or something. My school was literally like 150 yards away from my home. And there were trees in the, in the, in the schoolyard. <clears throat> and I grabbed a branch and I wanted to swing and stomp him in his chest. Like you see in the movies. Well, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. The branch <laughs> broke. I fell on the ground and everybody's standing around me laughing. And that was like after years of bullying and I ran home and I remember grabbing a kitchen knife and I ran back to school and my wife, my wife, my mother, she saw me running with a knife and she started to chase me and she stopped me until this day. I don't know what I would have done, but I was, I lost it. I mean, mm -hmm. I was ready to, so I might have, I don't know. I don't know what I would have, but I can understand, you know, it's never good violence. I understand that it's really bad. But if you, as a kid, have that on a daily basis, constantly, constantly, it does something to you. Listen to those things that people cannot say to me right now that come back all the way from when I was a kid. You know, you would think at 50, 58, you know how to deal with these things. But you, there you can see how words make an impact on a person, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that just stays with you for the rest of your life. The good thing is that I never used because of my fighting skills. I never used it bad, you know, since I was bullied, I was just using it for protection for me, but also for every other kid that got bullied. Guess who took care of that problem? That was me as well, you know? So yeah, yeah I came the bully, uh, the bully guy. He loved the bullies. <laughs> I mean, and the thing that you brought up I mean, about what's going on today, where unfortunately so many kids handle it, where they go to the extreme, like you said, now with, with guns and, and, it's just crazy. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you know, and, and I can remember when Columbine, for instance, happened. It just like it stopped the world in its tracks. You just couldn't even believe something like that happened. And nowadays, it seems like you hear that almost every other week on the news and you just flip the channel. It's not like that big a deal. You know, why do you why do you think maybe that is that these kids, you know, don't maybe have another outlet or another way to handle the situation 
other than going to like the nth degree to that level of you know violence it's it's, it's emotions you know it's uh you get pushed to a certain way. You don't know what you look at politics right now. It makes no sense. Yeah. People are pushing their family members out of the, because they have a different polit- political view. That's the family members. So they don't give a crap about other people. This is how we are right now. It's so easy to just keep swiping or doing things. Everything is non-people nowadays. Everything is on the phone. You start dating on the phone, break up on the phone. I mean, everything is that's done on the phone. You have a fight with somebody, somebody's... Uh, screaming they don't even look at you i had these guys uh, they don't they're screaming but they don't have they don't make eye contact because they're only used to doing it on the computer that is a safe environment and then suddenly they're looking away and they're screaming i go dude look at me what do you think i'm gonna hit you i'm not gonna hit you you can just talk to me just relax you know and, and even worse is like this girl what two weeks ago killed herself you know so it's go the other way around as well it's either they do something to the bullies yeah. Or they do something to hurt themselves and then they leave their families devastated. So this is something that needs to stop. And the kids simply don't have that. Like I, if I wouldn't have been bullied, I probably wouldn't have known either. But, you know, going through that, that is something that you don't wish on anybody. Yeah. Uh, it's the worst thing there is. So, yeah, it's sad. It's sad. I hope it's it uh, going to stop because of, somehow they believe it's cool, but it's like... It's the opposite, right? I mean, you're the most pathetic little person on the planet. If, and especially if you gang up also. And then pick out the weak people. Yeah. They don't go after the strong ones. And with me, by the way, they never wanted to fight me. There was words. Because I was an athlete. I've always been a good athlete. Mm-hmm. I mean, in school, when, you know, they they ne- nobody picked me. What with PE, if we did dodgeball, I was the first guy they picked. <laughs> because I would throw a hole through you. Because if the goalie was a goalie was a bully... I didn't even try to score. I just tried to hit him as hard as I could. People were sick <laughs> diving. Oh yeah, I would go out. That's one him. way of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, that's such a such a complex issue, and it's um, I, it's uh, that could be a whole other episode in and of itself. I don't know what the solution is there to to get you know people where they're mentally and emotionally able to handle that difficult situation, but then also, of course, to get to stop the bullying, which is as old as mankind. I mean, that's always been here. Yeah, but you have to stress the, the fight or flight, the whole that situation, you know, it, it freezes kids up and they don't think straight anymore. And they think they don't think there isn't there is an answer. There's always an answer. But if your mind is polluted by emotions, there's no you, you can't find an answer, you know. So if they yeah. sleep calm and relaxed, and that's why martial arts, you yeah. know, believe it or not, once you have a power, but you can control that power, you know, you become so much more calm because I can do something if I want. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would always warn them later when I grow up. Okay, don't do this, dude. You're making a huge mistake. You're going to lose this. What, do you think you can beat me? No. I know I can beat you. I don't think. <laughs> it's what I do all freaking day long <laughs> against other professionals. Chances you're going to win is, is nothing. And, oh, sucker punch? Well, you got to be really good with that. Because, dude, I've been hit with b- baseball bat. I've been hit with a Coca-Cola bottle. I've been, I've been never knocked out. Never. So I didn't even have an eight count in my life. So if you, it's like almost like a Samoan guy. They're way, they were worse. I have a, a few buddies of mine are Samoan. So you get hit with a baseball bat in the head that breaks. It's like whatever, you know. You have to your skull also. So yeah, watch out, watch out. Yeah, and so now just kind of going back to you know what we were talking about. You get into MMA, and you're, you're at first it's just a way to build your confidence and be able to handle these bullies that are picking on you. When was your first professional fight? Like, when did this actually go from self-defense to being a job? 
Um, you know, at 21, I left the house. My mom and dad. So for, first of all, I was 14. They took me off martial arts right away. Then when I was 20 or 21, I left the house. Immediately, I started doing martial arts. Now, don't get me wrong. In between, I would go to the libraries. I would have videotapes. I would watch uh, fights. I would watch things. And I would imitate. I was always really good with what I see. I, most of the time, I can do you know, and I and I'm a I'm a freaking guy. If I don't understand, if I don't know it now, I know it in an hour. And if I don't know it now, it's going to be two hours or tomorrow. But I will do anything in my power to know that what I need to know yeah. as fast as I can. So I I can be obsessed. I spent four hours in front of a mirror one time after I got uh, stopped my first Thai boxing class because my hands were low. And four hours in front of a mirror, I was just doing this. And my my ex at the time goes like, "You're insane!" I said, "No, this will not happen anymore." And the <laughs> next day, I went back to the gym, cleaned eighty five percent of the gym out. They thought I was joking with them that I already knew how to box. I go, "No, I spent three and a half four hours in front of a mirror yesterday because that was not going to happen anymore." But that's how I attack my problems. You know, I just go full in and yep. try to fix it immediately. Yeah, and just stick at it till it's fixed. So then, in you were about twenty one years old, and that's when. Uh, you got your first pro bout, or was that like an uh, no? That was just the beginning. Yeah. So there's this whole thing. Uh, how do I explain this? We call it dojo fighters. Okay. Um, that means those are guys are really good in the gym, but once they are under pressure, they can't handle the pressure, and then it doesn't come out what they can really do. They mm -hmm. lock up, or they, you know, and that I was one of those guys. Now with me, it was not a problem because I was just physically very strong, and I just knocked everybody out. Yeah. But if I would have faced a really good guy. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have gone to the third round because I would just completely no control, just mm -hmm. blasting people away, you know. But it all again stems from being bullied. It's the aggression. It's the people looking at you. It's you know, and you want to get it over with. It's a really weird way the mind works. But so I did like nine fights, nine knockouts, all in the first round except one, and then I lost the fight. Uh, which I took, I shouldn't have taken because I was drunk when I said yes, which I don't even remember. I didn't trade for three and a half years until they called me and they said, hey, why do we send the posters to? I go, what poster? From the fight. I said, who's fighting? He goes, you. I said, who am I fighting? <laughs> he says, Frank Lopman. I go, the animal. That's his nickname. Yeah. He go, yeah. I said, when did I say that? They said, New Year's Eve. And I started thinking, I go, oh man, oh, yeah. Geez. So I was a man of my word. Yeah, idiot. I should have never done that because that guy was bizarre over 100 matches i mean freaking 96 knockouts i mean it was you see and but so i i i lost that fight yeah and then everybody spit me out was that uh, your first loss that one that was my first loss yeah yeah uh, but i had two and a half weeks to train after three and a half years of being a bouncer yeah so and if the club closes at 5 a.m well then we go to the after party so you know as well as i do to stay awake, there's drugs, there's alcohol, there's women, everything bad goes at those places. Yeah. So I was absolutely not in shape. I couldn't even rope, skip rope the first yeah. three, four days because I would run out of gas. That's how <laughs> bad it was. So I should have taken the fight, but hey, <laughs> I thought since I knocked everybody else out, well, I'm going to take care of pride. Pride yeah. will mess up everything. Yeah. Yeah. Another match also, uh, I had to stop that match. I, I was physically, there's a whole big story, don't even want to go into it. Doesn't matter. Then I fought another match where the whole audience started fighting because I brought a whole bunch of my bouncer friends and he brought all his friends and the Hells Angels were there and everybody's watching and I was the main event. And this guy, I just beat the crap out of him in the first round. Second round, I continued. And then in the clinch, it was Thai boxing. He started biting my ear and I screamed at him, but he had to let go, let go, let go. And you see me loading up a knee and I knee him full in the pills. He goes down. I hit him in the head. Referee pulls me off. Everybody starts fighting. 
the whole audience goes crazy. Somebody threw in a chair. I always laugh about this, like a plastic chair, and it landed on my the the back of my coach. Jeez. And somehow the chair landed behind me on all legs, on all four legs. And while wow. everybody's fighting, there's a video of this. You see me, I, I notice the chair, so I sit down in the chair while <laughs> in the middle of the ring and everybody's fighting. It's wow. hilarious. Then the referee came over and said, why would you do that? I go, he bit my ear, dude. And he looked and he said, and he grabbed the microphone. He says, guys, he bit straight through. It's a clean hole through. He's not the good, he's not the guy who was wrong. So then everything calmed down. Yeah. And it was okay. So then Jeez. this is like the happened. wild, wild west. <laughs> this is it was, crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. So I I then I, you know, the 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 heat that I got from the people and saying I was not a good fighter, and, and it hurt me, you mm -hmm. know. And then suddenly I started doing these martial arts shows. We would do with sticks and nunchucks and brake tests and spinning kicks and all that stuff. We do the high choreo choreographed fight scenes. Mm -hmm. Started in nightclubs, like in the midnight, the light would go down. The dance floor needed to be open, and then we came up with some backflips and somersaults, and then we had this hole in spandex and pumped up bodies, and then we do these crazy fight scenes and. And that became suddenly it became a hit. It was really weird that we started doing that big event. Where was like, this that that you're? You're doing these uh, shows. Where where was this happening that you're doing all like in these? Holland. Oh, this is all in Holland. Yeah. We started traveling. We did Dutch TV, European TV, Eurosport, you know, huh. and then we started adding humor to it. And as soon as we started adding humor to it, it became this freaking great thing, you know. Huh. And now I was everywhere. And then one of these shows, because I would come up with backflips and a somersault, and that's how we would walk in. And then we start, right? I would kick him in the belly. He grabbed my foot, throw me back, and I would make a somersault flying backwards, kicking him in the face. Like, we did some cool stuff. Yeah. And cool. uh, and one of the, Chris Dolman, he's the godfather of MMA, so to say. He's, uh, he, he was an older guy, very known guy in Holland. He said, hey, man, he stopped me. He goes, I remember you from Thai boxing. You were an animal. Now I see you all doing these crazy moves. I think you will be really good for free fighting. I go, is that? That's a new sport. This is 92. Okay. Free fighting. Ah, oh, yeah, I can do anything. Choking arm bars. I go, oh, that, that sounds cool. No. So I went one time to his class, got destroyed by these guys. Had literally parked my car next to the freeway. Called my wife. I'm one of those first cell phones that we had. I said, I'm in the car sleeping. I said, I cannot drive. I'm done. I said, I'm going to sleep a couple hours and I come back. And the next day, I remember she was laughing. She goes, oh, so that was your free fight adventure? I go, no, no, no that's not it. I say, you what, six months? I'm going to clean that whole school out. Because now I had the buck. I wanted it. And then, you know, nothing happened. They got an injury. And, and suddenly there was a telephone call. And I was uh, in uh, in September. Oh, no, in 93. And they told me, he says, that's the guy, Chris Dolman. says, jump in your car right now. Come to yeah. Amsterdam, which is like a two, two and a half hour drive for me from all the way from the south of Holland to the north. Uh, there's this new organization, Pancras, and they're looking for fighters. And yeah. I think you're really good for this. You got to come and do a tryout. In, so I got, but before you got that invite to kind of go to that next level, the pancreas, was there a time where I, I don't know if you went to school or not, but was there a time where it was like, all right, you know, the, the fighting thing, doing the shows like this may not work out. I'm going to have to find a plan B or kind of grow up and, and get a real job in the world. Like, did you ever have that moment where you could have gone, you know, one or two routes? You know, I did a lot of budgets. I, 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 I'm a chef, you know, I'm a culinary chef. I went four years to culinary school. So that was my original profession. And then I became a model, believe it or not. It was at the time when there was <laughs> the guys, guys to come up. 
And okay. I had that, that model agency was run by three ladies who really liked me. So I was working three days a week. It was really good money. But then you know, once you start showing up at Shiners, they don't really like that if you have a photo shoot. <laughs> Big black eye. So lost that job. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, and then, and then suddenly the free fighting came there and, and I was doing the tryout. And one of his guys, who was a champion in Japan, he went really hard with me. And I go, dude, calm down. <laughs> we just need to, they just want to see technique. There's no need for, to try and knock each other out. And I, I think he thought I was afraid, I guess, because he turned it up. So I stopped yeah. him again. I go, dude, I'm okay with this. <laughs> but it's not going to be one-way traffic. You understand that, right? So now, of course, it was a fight. But I sent him to a nice high kick knockout. He went down. He had a bunch of stitches. And that was it. The two coaches, they were pointing at me. And I said, we wanted him. And yep. September 93, September 21st, 1993, it's my very first time I went on the plane. A 13-hour yep. plane ride all the way to Japan. Yeah. And boom, everything started. It's wow. really weird. It was Japan. Is that kind of where it all started for the MMA world? Because it seems like a lot of guys got their start over there. And then eventually, you know, it kind of caught fire, you know, back here in the States. Yeah. I, I So I was fighting on the first event. And the main event uh, was Ken Shamrock. And okay. Ken Shamrock was telling me before we were talking. And he said, man, I'm going to do this thing in two months. It's called the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Go as it. He says, it's a cage fight. There's no referees. You know, you just go in, they lock the door, and then you just go to town. I go, oof, that sounds not good. He says, you don't want to do it? I said, not a referee there. I said, no, I would not like to do that. He says, why not? You're afraid. I go, well, if I get knocked out and you have a psychopath who jumps on top of you and he gives you like six, seven yeah. more punches, that's asking for brain damage. You know, if there's a referee to pull them off, sign me up. But until that happens, I would never want to do that. You know, I, I kind of love my life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I have a daughter, you know. <laughs> But then, uh, you know, John, big John McCarthy was the referee after the second show in the UFC. He said, listen, if I can't step in, I'm going to stop because someone's going to die. Yeah. This is too crazy. Yeah. I mean, we had this guy kicked in the, fell on his knees, got kicked in the face, teeth are flying next to the commentators. I mean, that was the first event. It was like Jeez. freaking bizarre. Was Dana White, was he involved at this time or that, that came no. about later? Yeah. That was Bob Marowitz. He was the first guy who started it. Okay. And uh, yeah, so, but then once... Once they had the referee, now of course I wanted to fight in the UFC as well. But I, I was focused on Japan. I, yeah. I was doing really well over there and and honing my skills, you know, to yeah. go to the UFC. That's awesome. And was there a time I ask a lot of athletes that I've had on the show this because it seems like there's always that point in your career where it's like, man, if I just had known then what I know now, and in particular in the way that we train and the way that we diet and things like that. I mean, even you see Tom Brady, you know, has this whole TB12 method and he talks about, hey, when I was coming out of Michigan, you know, I was fat, I was drinking beers and, you know, what could he have been at that stage in his 20s? Yeah. For you, you mentioned like when you were doing the shows and stuff and uh, you're bouncing, you know, all hours of the night. Was there a time where you're like, I really need to get serious with, you know, with my lifestyle to become a better fighter? No, I've been always a loose cannon. I thought I would die early. I was always crazy. And so it, it was stupid. No, no foresight, you know, yeah. I'm going to die anyway. You know, why would I, you know, so it, it was really weird. I was, uh, I was very dumb, so to say, like the traveling and the fighting really made me a different person. Now meeting people and business wise and everything started becoming yeah. a fighting. And, and the, the crazy thing what happened was like, I just told you with the dojo fighting. Yeah. 
So I had no control in Thai boxing. So now I'm in Japan. And this is crazy, right? So I'm thinking the day before the fight, there is no weigh-ins. And I go, why is there no weigh-ins? It's weird, you know? I mean, oh, well, I'm finding a Japanese guy and they're known for being honest. So I guess it's okay. So the next day, and then I thought, did we talk about a weight class? Now, now I have no clue. I don't even know the rules by now, right? So I thought we all go to go over that the day before. Yeah, you're well prepared. Go to the event. <laughs> yeah. And this tall Japanese guy walks up to me and he introduces himself to me. And I go, oh, you're the promoter. And he goes, no, I'm fighting you. I say, you're fighting me tonight. Yeah. And I look at him and I go, what's your weight? And I think he said like a 228 or 235, something. Like, it was like a 28 pound weight difference with me. Yeah. And I and I go, that's weird. And then the promoter walked up. I said, oh, so you're the promoter. Yeah. I go, is he not too happy? And he goes, no, no, no. We have no weight classes. Everybody fights everybody. I go, oh, great. So I tried to force a smile. I said, that's awesome. I love it, you know. Uh, how many rounds are we fighting? He goes, one round. I go, great. How many minutes? And he goes, 30. <laughs> and I go, so, but again, I go, yeah, nice. I love it. I look at my manager. I go, shit, what is going on? <laughs> and I think that combined with the fact that the Japanese audience is completely quiet is the most eerie thing there is. Like you can... You can hear people talk in the fifth row. I mean, it's it's that really? high. Pin drop. Yeah. Yeah. Like when a golf somebody match, looks yeah. them out, you go, I go crazy. And then it's quiet again. But I think that combined with a 30-minute fight, me realizing, wait a minute, if I don't drop this guy in the first minute and a half, I got 28 and a half minutes to go. So I gotta relax. So I put these big R's on my hand with an with the marker, which stands for rustig, coincidentally starts with an R, relax. It's the same thing in America. Yeah. Big R's on my head. And the only thing that my corner would say was constantly, if I would get hit, I say, if somebody hits me, tell me to stay calm because I'm a hot hat and I want to pay back, you know, and I take my time. Take my... So you yeah. only hear them say, breathe. I never had a coach. I taught everything myself, by the way, as well. So that's why I always had a manager in the corner. I never had a coach in the corner. But that was their only instruction. Relax, yeah. relax, relax. And then suddenly a whole different world opened for me. That first fight, it was the most eerie thing. I was so in control. Yeah. I heard everything. I heard Americans talk about on the first fight. I, later, I told them what they were talking about. They yeah. were watching. And they go like, how can you hear? I said, I, I was so weird. I could, everything was so calm. I was, yeah. everything worked in sync. But I, I, like I was in the dojo, that's what I was now in fighting huh. that was it that was the so like that before. that way of being like a loose cannon like you said did that kind of go away or was that still there Done. you had controlled it yeah, yeah you if moved you see, on yeah if you see pictures from me in thai boxing every picture is this my facial expressions you see in japan it's this there's no movement in my face there's no emotions everything yeah. just worked yeah it was like the what there is this moment, I always say this, because it's it's a cool moment. And trust me, it's not, I didn't plan this. This was just, it happened. And I have no clue how it is. So what happened, the guy starts. And then right away, I, I realized, okay, a high kick with a, with a cross. So I give him a high kick, put my foot back. And as soon as my foot landed, bam, I hit him in the face. And he goes down. That's like first 15 seconds. Um. So now the guy's down. And I'm, my my mind tells me, because there was eight counts in Japan. Mm -hmm. Now, normally, what you want to do, you want to run to your corner because it's the moment you're in the corner, that's when they start counting, right? Okay. So if you go a long time back to your corner, you give him more rest. So most of the fighters, you see him hurrying to the corner. Yep. But something in me told me not to do that. 
and, and there's two voices talking. It's really weird. And the one said, no, let's do intimidation. Just to, so the guy goes down, but I see he's looking at me. So I'm just walking over to him and I look at him and I give it the two or three beats. And then I turn around and I start walking very slowly back to my corner. So the one voice is telling me, go fast, 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 fast. And the other guy, yeah. stay calm, stay calm, stay calm. Because that voice that was talking, he thought it was way more intimidating for that person to, to see me like, oh, he's going to take all the time you need. I'm, uh, I'm going to drop you again. So I tried to do reverse cycle. Nothing planned. That was just happening. It was the most insane thing. And then I, yeah, then I stopped him also really. It was too hard. It was scary. Yeah. It was two days gone Yeah, uh, in the hospital. Like I, I didn't. I told my wife, I said, if he's not going to come out, this is it. I don't want to do this anymore. He's a really nice guy. He actually became a good friend of mine uh, later on. Aji is his name, Yanagisawa, but that was hard to pronounce, so everybody calls him Aji. Uh, but that was it. it. It it changed me from the crazy fighter. Suddenly, I was in complete control. Yeah. And that was it. That was and really so, Boz, what, what role does fear play in all this? Because, you know, at, at the outset, you know, this first maybe half or so of your career, you said you're a loose cannon. Then all of a sudden you find a way to get in control and to remember to relax and breathe. Like you said, now maybe you're thinking a little bit more. Um, were, I mean, did you ever go in afraid either when you just went crazy and wanted to kill them or when you said, let me take a beat and think things out. Did fear ever enter your mind? Like how did that play out? Also another thing, it was the wildest thing, you know, it's like, you know, in the, if the bell goes and it goes and I'm in this bubble, I'm saying, and 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 I'm allowing what comes into the bubble, mm-hmm. so all the noise I can shatter out. But I listen to, especially if it's an American corner, I listen to their instructions, what they gave to him, and I just I'm I'm tuning in, and I make these weird things. I started talking to my corner, the Dutch corner, in English, and I talk to English in him because I would say the dumbest things. I would say suddenly, you know, I lay on the guy, boom, on top, and I look at my corner, I say. Hey, tonight, you want to go to a, a gas panic again or you want to go to Motown? Those are two bars. They're famous in Tibet. <laughs> and he goes, what do you mean? I say, Motown wasn't really that nice last time. I said, I'll get back to you a little bit later. And I would continue. I thought those things would really mess with the opponent because he goes like, what the heck is this guy doing? He's talking about his going out tonight and yeah. drinking while he's fighting me. So I tried to do all these little things to just throw him off. Yeah, and to see if I can disturb him a little bit, so they're not thinking about only fighting him anymore. They're also going like, "What's what's going on?" Which I can use to my advantage. You see, so but yeah. all these things, like I said, I didn't, I didn't plan. This is not me. I planned everything out. It was just happened. It was the the wildest thing. Really cool feeling. That's what I missed the most, actually, yeah. about fighting because the control. I, I wish that I had the control in everything else in life, like I had in fighting. I'm still trying to find that, like auditions. If I have to go to a movie audition, it's so nerve-wracking to me because it's a minute, 45 seconds, and everything depends on that one thing, Yeah, you know? And it's a lot of pressure. Now, in fighting, I had no problem with that. Yeah, But I wish I could control that as well in, in other things, in other areas. But I'm still trying to figure out how to <laughs> It's a lifelong journey. <laughs> and to yeah. that point, I mean, can you take some of the things that you learned in, in the ring or in the octagon to – what you're doing now as, as a businessman or an actor and, and just in life in general, or do, do you struggle with that? Is it like just two different worlds that can't ever mix? No, the, it, it, everything goes hand in hand. I always tell people everything's mm-hmm. preparation, right? Well, I've been used 
to to fight and work out really freaking hard. Even injuries, you have to work around the injuries. You find ways that you can still work out. And my pushing is the way to get good. So once I stopped fighting, it was for me easy to be commentating and all that stuff because I would just put the work in. You know, yeah. the best the, the best medicine to stay calm or to take a lot of nerves away is to make sure you're 100% prepared. Yeah. Like in fighting, if you go to a fight and you know that you can only fight 10 minutes in a 30-minute fight, yeah, you're going to have insecurities in your mind. If you know you can just go, that's that takes a big steam of nerves off. Yeah. And that's the same in acting, you know? And I don't have a photographic memory like some of my friends have. They read something two, three times, they got it. You know, they're really great actors. I have to hammer it in. But you give me two days, oh, it's in there. And once it's in there, you know, because again, I'm obsessive compulsive, like the four hours in front of the mirror, you know, yep. if I get a script, I need to know it today. If yep. it's not today, it's going to be tomorrow, like that, you know, and then rehearse, 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 and that takes the nerves away. Where does, along those lines, I mean, where does your gut come into play as far as saying, you know what, I'm just going to show up and, and I don't want to say wing it, but I'm just going to gonna go with my feel versus sometimes I think folks, especially in business, they can work so hard and want to be so perfect that they end up getting like stuck in their own head. And they yeah. have this like paralysis by analysis. Yeah. It, do you think there's kind of like a, a medium there or are there just some domains where you say, I'm going to be the hardest worker in the room and others where you say, you know what, I'm just going to be me and see what happens. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good that you touch on that. Yeah. Because I never thought about that, which, and, 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 and I think, I automatically did it. You see, I've been doing things without knowing. There's a bunch of stuff that will come up also. Like, for instance, I never game planned. I never watch their fights. Like another you know? fighter. You didn't, yeah, you didn't scout No, them. because if I if I would... Yeah, because he can change his game, right? You never know. Yeah. Sometimes I would look like his very first fight, then his fifth fight, and maybe his last fight. And the things that he'd been doing since he started fighting, those are things you can use. But if he had a spinning who kicked knockout to the head in his last fight, that doesn't mean that he's going to land that thing again. So, you know, I just stayed away from that. You see, so I don't think I ever overthought it because, yes, if he just knocked somebody out with a spinning head kick to the head, uh, spinning kick to the head, that might be going in my head and maybe I'm going to be afraid of it. And you know, as well as I do, if you're afraid of something, most of the time it's going to happen, right? That's yeah. how it works. But I always was very easy. I said, no, I didn't game plan. I, I swear this. I, I never, didn't even know if my opponent would be a southpaw or not, left-handed or not. <laughs> so if he would show up and he's left-handed, I never thought, oh, shit, he's left-handed. Never thought, just deal with it. You <laughs> see, so maybe that was the reason for me to not get into that mode that you were talking about. Yeah, interesting. That's really interesting. Did you ever play other sports yeah, or was it always MMA? No, I was, I was actually pretty good at the track and field also. Uh, I was going to become the next uh, the Dutch Bruce Jenner. I wanted to be the decathlon guy. <laughs> yeah, gold medalist in what is 70, 76, I think. Right? He was a freaking animal, you know? Yeah. And uh, I was good my high jump, long jump, a, a discus spear, uh, a, a shot put. I was I was good. <laughs> you know? I mean, I should, my, my high jump was, what was it? I was 6'10", I think, when I was 17. So wow. yeah, I was, that's... yeah, a long jump. I was, yeah. So, but... This is so weird. Um, my tendons are so affected by all the the cortisones that I took. That's what we found out later. Because yep. as a sick kid, I was overloaded with cortisones. I took okay. 45 pills a day, I remember that. 15, three times a day. Wow. And now they didn't know the long-term effects from corticosteroids, you know, and it affects your tendons. And it started early already with high jump. Like if I would go for a high jump, my first jump was like six feet. 
Yeah. That's my first jump because I could only jump three or four times. And then my tendons and my knees would hurt so bad that I couldn't jump anymore. So I had only like three or four jumps. And that became more and more and more. And then I had to stop that. Yeah. Somehow, maybe the break in between until I started fighting healed it in such a way that I was able to still pull off a career in fighting. But eventually, in fighting, what my career stopped was exactly that again. It was this time in my arms. It becomes yeah. so painful. People have no clue when they talk about pain. Like I would, the tendonitis would hit in my arms. It was a really weird thing. If I would hit a bag really hard, I would feel like, like really, and I go, oh shit, here we go. And then I had 45 minutes and 45 minutes, the pain would start and freaking intense. Like it's coming from the inside out. There's no pills you can take. I mean, you got to fight. There's not yeah. like, like lots of painkillers in there, which by the way, they don't have them in Holland, like all the crap that they have here. <laughs> um, so that eventually that stopped my career because if that would happen, let's say two weeks before a fight, that would mean that every workout, 10 workouts a week, I would have 45 minutes to train and I would be in pain for an hour and a half, two hours, like bizarre pain. I, I would lose weight because I couldn't eat from the pain. That's how painful it was. So that took the whole pleasure out of fighting and that's why I had to retire. Yeah. And when you retired, I mean, did that subside or is this something that you're stuck with forever that just in, in daily life, it can creep up and bother you? No, it stopped. It stopped. It, it, it was so crazy because I, I, you know, once once you stop something um, that gives you a really good feel, like if you have fifteen thousand people, you knock somebody out and people go crazy. Trust me, it's a really good feeling. You know, yeah, you knock right. somebody out or you choke somebody, whatever it is, and suddenly that gets taken away from you. And also, what I really enjoyed because I have ADD, and the only time my mind is completely calm is either I'm sparring or working out really hard. Or fighting. And now suddenly I couldn't do it anymore. Yes, I could still do it in fight and in, in sparring, but there was no goal anymore. So yeah. I started drinking, doing drugs. You know, there's a lot, a lot of athletes, a lot of people who were at the peak and then it's they stop, they fall in that trap. They try to replace that feeling with, with something, something else. And most of the time it's drugs and alcohol. You know, so and that went bizarre. And I'm all happy drunk. It's not like I'm walking and screaming at the kids. I'm dancing with the kids, but still, you know, you're not a father, you're not a husband, you're not a, a man, right? The man is in control of himself. Yeah. So then in 2006, after seven years not competing, they asked me if I want to fight again. I said, let me work out two days, see how I feel. And my body felt great. I said yes to the fight. My wife goes, what are you doing? I go, honey, I can't drink. If I take this fight, it's going to stop me, force me to stop drinking. You know, so that's why I took the fight. Sure, the money was nice as well because it was my biggest payday because when I was fighting, it was 40, what the UC, I made $55,000 in the UC, which at the time, a tournament, three fights in one night was 60,000. So for me, that was really good money. I was one of the highest paid guys at that time. Yeah. But nowadays, it's like, this is dropping the bucket. Yeah, it's nothing, it's nothing yeah. yeah. But the, the comeback in 2006 was 225. And I wanted a pool. I wanted to move to a different house in our neighborhood with a pool. So I took the fight, but the main reason was to stop drinking. And yeah. that worked. You know, I did it. I stopped the drinking. And, uh, and then, and I, I mean, after you found that that new purpose to train for a goal for that fight, <laughs> that got you to stop drinking and everything. Once that was done, was that urge there again? Or no, were, were somehow I like can do Yeah. But, yeah. but you know, the, the tendonitis did come back. And a way a whole more, bunch of more... It, it was God telling me, this is it, dude. You're not going to fight anymore. Let's take yeah. it away. Yeah. Which I hated at the time, but now I'm loving it. Yeah. You see, everything, I'm a very big believer. So it's, it's everything happens for a reason. 
Yeah. And if you look at my record, people always go like, my God, you were so smart, man. You stopped where you were on top. I didn't lose in my last 22 fights. Wow. That's a great way to stop. <laughs> yeah, but, I'd say so. Yeah, yeah, but I, I told him, I said, listen, that was not me. That was literally the Lord saying, hey, here you have some injuries because I would have been that knucklehead. I would have yeah. kept on fighting and eventually you are going to lose because if you're over 40 years old, you have guys who started trading at six now. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Focusing only on, on MMA. I yeah. thought it was mixed. You know, you still had to figure things out. Not anymore. Yeah. It's a sport. It's a martial art by itself. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it was perfect that I got the injuries because that uh, left me with a really nice record. Yeah, yeah, like you said, I guess everything happens for a reason. And now we fast forward. You, you mentioned you're 58. You're still in tip-top shape. How do you train now? Like, what have you had to give up? How have you had to adapt? Uh, you know, what are you doing nowadays? Nowadays, I, I just work out. I had four neck surgeries, uh, which didn't come from fighting, what people believe. You know, it's it's a fight scene in movies, in a TV show, actually. I dropped upside down on my head. Uh, not that high, but, you know, with your whole body, 210 pounds comes down on your head. Yeah. And then my arm started slinking. I go, what's going on? You know, and then I, I, I didn't use the arm because it was hurting my shoulder until I had to do an autograph session in Boston for the UFC. And I couldn't travel because it was so much pain. So I went to the doctor and said, can you put a freaking cortisone shot in here? Because I don't want to travel like this. So he did. But now the pain was gone. And because mm -hmm. of that, I tried to use my arm. And then I realized I had no power in my arm. I couldn't lift my carry-on. I sure. couldn't hold a glass. You know, it would just keep standing. I go, what's going on? And I saw my arm slinking, going down. I go, is my arm getting, look at this. It's really weird. And it was my nerves. But now we're four months in, you know, which is really bad for your nerves because if you don't help the nerves right away to free it up, well, it's permanent damage. So my yeah. arm here, well, if I can pull it up, you can tell. You see, it's the whole Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's just, but this, like this was my whole arm. So I got a little bump back now. I didn't have that even. My triceps were gone, my shoulders. But after the fourth surgery, my triceps started coming back in my shoulders a little bit. But my biceps, I don't think it will ever fill out. But yeah. that's what I'm working out in the gym pretty yeah. much every day. I do. I walk on a treadmill, like a 30% incline. Okay. I do that for, at a pretty high pace because my knees. But yeah. I do it at a pace. But it's a 30% incline. I just walk uh, 30 minutes, which yeah. is hard. And then I flip. I always walk backwards for 10 or 15 minutes as well. So you balance both muscles out from the leg. Okay. And that's it. So my maximum sure. 45 minutes I work out. But my workouts are like I do 12 exercises Yeah. in about 35 minutes. And I do everything 20 repetitions. And they go like, how is that even possible? Because everything is supersets with me. Okay. I don't like gotcha. waiting. I don't like sitting down waiting for the next set. Yeah, yeah it gets pulling, boring. I'm pushing. I'm pulling. I'm pushing. And that constantly. You okay. know, I'm go, 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 go. Because yeah, keep the heart rate up. Yeah, keep the heart rate up and get your body known to throw out of a lot of energy in a short amount of time. Because if I need to fight on the street, which is 25 years ago, but you never know, right? You have a family, you want to be prepared. Yep. Well, that's the best way to prepare, I guess. You know, you know, making sure that you can throw out a lot of power yep. in a short amount of time and be ready yep. for it. Exactly. And now I want to ask you about, I mentioned in the uh, introdu introduction, amongst everything else, you are an inventor, you have a, uh, a device that you created, it's the O2 trainer. What exactly is that? And is that something that's that's recent or that you kind of threw together way back when, uh, you know, for this yourself? This was coming way, way back then, you know, this was when I was uh, 14, I came up with the idea. Because what happened was I would be a week in bed with an asthma attack. Mm -hmm. And then um, 
if I would resume my track and field, needless to say, the 800, the 1500 meters and the 400 meters were my worst because of my asthma. Yeah. But then I would always break my running times after I had an attack a week in bed. Not a, I couldn't train for like the last 10 days and then I had better shape. How was this even possible? Uh, and I saw a doctor. I went to a doctor. I, I spent a lot of time at the doctors, of course. I saw a drawing of a pair of lungs to the wall. And that's where I realized that your infection, you have no lung infection. It's not there. The infection is in the airways that go to the lungs. And on the post, it showed a healthy airway and it showed an infected airway. And I go, oh, I've been working out my lungs because at the time I thought my lungs were doing the work. Um, so unknowingly, I've been pulling in air for seven days straight, 24-7. I made my lungs very strong. Then when the infection is gone, it's much easier for me to breathe. That's why I'm breaking these running times. Oh, why don't I come up with something that controls the air intake? And I start working with the washers. So let me see if I bite. No, I don't. Like washers and bolts, you know, yep, those yep. little things. Yeah, they're all I circles. I would put yeah. a washer in front of my teeth with a little tiny hole, and I would try to breathe through that. And so I could control the air intake. So I could make my, my lungs stronger. That's what I thought it was. So I'll go into <laughs> that in a little bit. And, uh, but needless to say, that's a very dangerous thing to do, right? I mean, if, if it shoots in your lung and it bypasses one of those airways, <laughs> you're then I'm it down, you'll die on the spot, you know? So there's nothing you can do. But, you know, many years later, about 12 years ago, I thought I should make that thing, huh. you know, because everybody was telling me it was the routinizer. We called it in the beginning. <laughs> and uh, I made a prototype and I started training with a prototype. Now, know that for Everywhere I went in my life, I always had an inhaler with me. I need okay. to. If yeah. I would sneeze violently, my lungs would close, have to open them up. If I take a 100-meter sprint and I stop one, two minutes later, and every asthma patient will tell you the same thing, you have to spray open your lungs. Every yeah. fight, every workout, every every time I need to spray open my lungs before. Once I'm, it's open, I can go. Yeah. You know? And three weeks in with the O2 trainer, I didn't need my inhaler anymore. Whoa, okay. So now I send it to my buddy in Holland who has asthma. And he called me back eight days later. He goes, dude, I want to sell these things in Europe. He goes, what do you mean? He said, my asthma is gone. I go, shit, what do you do? This is crazy. You know, that's why I sent it to you. Man, we're up to something. And then we started training, but it's very hard. You know, you come as a fighter and you come out with a product. They go, oh, so we're one of those guys. You know, people, you know, it's a simple looking device. It's yeah. an inspiratory muscle training uh, trainer, which has been around since the freaking gladiators. It's not nothing new, but I just came up with a concept that yeah. I could use so I could bypass all the other patterns that were out there. Gotcha. And Got it. it. I, I, yep. I, uh, and then I started training with it and it became stronger and stronger, but it was very hard to put it on the market. Yeah. Now, first for the people at home. So I, because otherwise you have no clue what I'm talking about. First of all, breathing is the number one priority in the body. That's it. Food is next, uh, water is next, then it's food and shelter, right? But the yeah. first one is breathing. It's very important. Then you find out that 95% of the people are breathing wrong. Google it. You'll find, you cannot find any other test. It will say 95% because we all raise our shoulders when we breathe. Yeah. We breathe perfect till we were like five and a half years of age. But then, you know, we see superheroes and we go to the doctor and we, we see apps, six packs, and, and women see that too. And you start thinking as a kid, wait a minute. If I start keep breathing through my belly, they think I'm fat, you know? So people start readjusting. You're also sitting down the whole day now in class. Yes. You also have a belt, you know? So that pushes that breath a little bit upwards. You go to the doctor, puts a stethoscope on your chest. You say, take a deep breath. 
Oh, that's just where my lungs are. Your lungs are not here. Your lungs are here, below. The densest, most rich part of your lungs is actually at the bottom. But we all breathe like this. So four to six of these shoulder-raising breaths is the same as one diaphragmatic breath. Think about that. Let's take yeah. the lowest number, four. Four breaths like this is the same as doing one time with a diaphragmatic breath. Okay, wait a minute. So then if you see me in a fight, I was breathing wrong. You see me breathing like that. Now that is completely gone because now I started training my breathing muscles. And this is where it gets interesting. Your breathing muscles, yeah. Because your lungs are just two bags. There's not a muscle in your lung. Mm -hmm. If you cannot expand your chest, you cannot breathe. That's yes. it. You die. Now, chest expansion is done by your diaphragm and by your intercostals, which are the muscles in between your ribs. Your external intercostals are for opening up and your internal intercostals are for squeezing the air out again. Now, I brought this thing here. This yep. is, let's say it's a diaphragm. This is literally what the diaphragm almost looks like. It, mm -hmm. it might be really big. It's really thin. It's four millimeters. So yep. It's a really thin muscle, but it's super strong. And it sits in the, in the, at the bottom of your rib cage. So the sides of this are attached to the lower part of your ribcage all the way around. Yeah. 360. And this is what the diaphragm does to expand your chest. Poof. It drops down. Okay. And then from that angle, you go like, oh, what's that doing? Well, look from this angle. Poof. It expands. Yeah, exactly. And that expansion happens in the center of your body. And that together with your intercostals, that will open up your chest. Now, there's a vacuum between your body and your lungs. And that vacuum will actually open up your lungs for you. So I always tell people, because this screws your mind over, your chest doesn't expand because you put air in them. Your chest expands, and that is how you pull the air in. Yeah. And you go, like, oh, and we have 11 pounds of breathing muscles, 11 pounds, and we don't work those out. Okay, now let's take it a step further. How does your stamina increase? Yeah, boss, I train really hard. That's why it increases. Yeah, but what is, what's the science behind it? Why would your stamina increase if you train really hard? Well, I have the answer for you. If you train a muscle over and over again, it becomes more efficient. And the word efficient kind of says it, right? It uses less oxygen. Thus, your stamina increases. And this happens with everything. Now, now I'm touching another one, metaborflex. Metaborflex is gassing, when you're gassing, right? Yeah. You know what happens when you're gassing? And I always use this example. Imagine you're running a hill and you're sprinting and you start getting tired and suddenly, boof, it hits you. You start gassing. What that is at that moment is that your body starts regulating your blood flow. It takes all the oxygenated blood. It pulls it away from your legs. No, boss, that's not true. I'm running up. No, 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 it does. Blood stealing. It's actually a medical term. You can look this up. Medical term. It steals the blood away that goes to your legs, and it sends it to the number one priority in your body, which are your breathing muscles, which you have 11 pounds of. Because yeah. if you don't breathe, you die. That's the number one priority. Yeah. So that's guessing. Okay, wait a minute. So if I work out my breathing muscles with resistance, and that's what the O2 trainer is, it's a, it's a, it's, so is it, it's like restricting, it, excuse me. Yes, it's like restricting, restricting the, the airflow. The air yeah. So it's almost making yeah, it harder to breathe. Bit. Oh, you... So if you update your breathing muscles and you strengthen them and they become more efficient. Now, instead of gassing here, you're going to gas there. You yeah. have way more stamina. Like every endurance athlete in the Olympics, they will use inspiratory muscle training. Yeah, All it's almost them. like the the altitude trainers where they put the mask on that and then yeah, they train I on that. Do, you see, that thing doesn't work. The, people try to mimic that. High altitude yeah. is just less oxygen in the air. It doesn't give you any resistance. It's like you can train your breathing muscles by breathing if you yeah. want, right? Yeah. But it's like getting a pump on a bicep curl without a weight. 
It's going to take you a lot of freaking reps in order to get a pump. Yeah. Now, what this does, this attacks the breathing muscles. So this is weight training for your breathing muscles. So now you suddenly start working out those 11 parts of breathing muscles, and they become oh. efficient. And then you start delaying the effect. And that's why all these, even Usain Bolt, whatever, he runs freaking nine and a half seconds or whatever it is. First thing he does when he wakes up in the morning, comes out of his high altitude tent, and he does 30 repetitions with an inspiratory muscle trainer. And this is what an inspiratory muscle trainer is. It's a very basic concept, very simple. Yeah. And once I have a flap, the yeah. flap opens opens up and then breathe out. Yep. So exhaling is complete without resistance because okay. if you combine both at the same time, not good for you. Separating, really good. But let's go into that in a little bit. When yep. I breathe in, this one closes and will force you to breathe into this side. Now, Got it. that size, it comes with all these different resistance camps. Gotcha. Yeah, it's like a, a whole set of dumbbells for your, uh, That's it. your lungs. Yeah. There's literally weight training for your breathing muscles and those are all your dumbbells, all those little yep. caps. That's interesting. No, then you start training with it. And like for instance, I, I started with a with a hole of four millimeter. I did that in 2018, May. That's when I started daily doing it. So almost five years doing it every single day. Okay. I did that. You do 30 repetitions. I can show you in a bit what you have to do to, yep. you know, to, to, to attack the correct breathing muscles because you have breathing muscles in your back as well. We have to attack those as well. So there's two exercises for it. Yeah. Um, once you start working those muscles out, everything started changing. So I did yep. cap number four, 30 repetitions. And the way to see if you get stronger is by timing your sessions. Well, 30 repetitions took me three minutes and 45 seconds. People can literally go on my Facebook page. They can go five years back and they see me with cap, what it says, cap 11, which is four millimeter. And I, it says my time. So now I started doing these breathing exercises. Two years in, I go, I look at my wife, I go, you know what? I'm going to put the old cap on. I just want to see how fast I can do it now. So it was three minutes and 45 seconds. And now I did it in 55 seconds. <laughs> so I went 75% increase. So now my breathing is so much in control. And what breathing does for you, what people don't have an idea, is the wildest thing. It drops. So first of all, diaphragmatic breathing will stimulate the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the nerve that's, it, it, it's involved in pretty much any physiological <laughs> action in the human body. Breathing, uh, hearing, all those muscles as well. Right? Yeah. Um, oh, so what the vagus nerve does is once you start diaphragmatically breathing, and again, people, 95% of us are breathing wrong, but if you start yeah. using your diaphragm, it will stimulate the vagus nerve. And once the vagus nerve gets stimulated, it drops your heart rate, drops your blood pressure, and then in turn, it drops your cortisol level, so you get calm and relaxed. For anxiety, this is everything. PTSD, everything. Sleep yeah. apnea, adjusting to high altitude, uh, back problems, balance. I mean, I have on my website a list of published medical journals, uh, asthma, COPD, uh, yeah. cystic fibrosis, everything. I believe it. By medical I, I, science. I believe it. I remember I saw... Uh... You know, you know, Hicks and Gracie, of course, is probably, yeah, yeah. you know, came to fame around the same time you did, you know, a legend in jujitsu. And then, of course, UFC and all that. But uh, his book is called Breathe. And, and that's one of the things he said that even right there with jujitsu, one of the most important things he did was really learn how to breathe, which it just sounds so elementary. But then you see athletes at the highest level, you really go back to such basics to try and uh, gain that edge. Well, you, you look at the fighters, 
and they come back to the corner and they're breathing like this, they yeah. completely breathe wrong. Yeah. You you can increase your stamina so much more. And they all complain. They go like, oh, like uh, there's some fighters out there that have really good stamina, right? Tony Ferguson is one of those guys who doesn't get tired. But mm-hmm. look at him breathe. He goes back to the corner. There's no chest movement whatsoever. It's all belly breathing. He breathes correct. You can do this too. And forget about EPO and all this crazy stuff. Don't cheat. Don't yeah. do that. Start training your breathing muscles. Everybody can do this. If the highest endurance athletes on the planet are doing, why aren't you guys doing it? I don't understand people yeah. anymore. Do you ever try and use that uh, the device, you know, almost like cross-training, like while you're doing something else, whether it's sitting in a sauna, doing yoga, doing stretches, yeah. or do you do it just where you're strictly focusing on you know, the breath? Well, I started out working out with the auto trainer. This is how I started it, right? Uh, and that cured me from my asthma. Yeah. But then I got in contact with a guy who used to trade also Usain Bolt. And, and he said to me, he says, no, do only breathing exercises with it. Because at that moment, you're attacking only the breathing muscles. And it's way more effective. That's what everybody does. So I started doing that. Then I went, uh, I got in contact with this uh, breathing expert, Dr. Belisa Vrenic. She's a world-renowned breathing expert. She trains every military, everybody. And I went to her office on Fifth Avenue in New York. And uh, she said, uh, uh, okay, let me measure your chest expansion. So I knew what she was doing right away. So she measures me, exhale, yep. inhale. She goes like this. She goes, no, not possible. Do it again. Do it again. And then I do it again. And she goes, one moment. And she runs out. I go, what's going on? She comes back with another doctor. She says, if I don't bring him, he's not going to believe it. I go, what's going on? <laughs> she goes, well, normally when somebody breaks a record with us, with chest expansion, it's like an eighth of an inch, maybe a quarter. You almost went two inches more than everybody else. And then we found out it's because of the breathing muscle training. So yeah. then she put it in her book. And that's when people start believing me like, oh, shit, it really works. Yeah, yeah that's and so cool. They'll start picking up. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's starting to gain traction that people realize this is another part of the body that you could actually target and train. Um, it was weird. I mean, my experience and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, I, when I was growing up, I had asthma, but it was allergy induced asthma. And yeah, I used to I have to get it. A- couple shots a week and and I'd be out in the outfield playing baseball just wheezing and sneezing like a maniac and I don't I don't know what it was whether maybe it was that medication that we had started taking but there was almost something I just outgrew and and I mean I never would have thought like a mile when I was a kid felt like impossible yeah then after college you know I was able to do marathons and an Ironman and things like that and it just went away I don't know if it was because of playing sports or just growing but yeah. to have something like that to almost accelerate that uh, progress, I mean, that's that's just so cool. Well, you know, it's I have allergy-induced asthma. Like, if I would pet a dog in the early days, 20 minutes, I will be with the dog for 20 minutes. I will be in bed for a week the next day. <laughs> so it was very – now I still have allergies, but my breathing muscles are so strong, even when it's clogged up, it pulls it straight through. It's way yeah. too strong. Yeah, so did core, you ever do – Super thick. That's all. And you ever do hypoxic swimming? Did you yeah. ever come across that? It, it's like uh, it was training I had read that the Navy SEALs use. And it's um, swimming, but you swim your distance or you do your sprint and you do it all underwater. So if you yeah. were going to swim, you know, maybe one lap in the pool rather than your normal stroke, you would just sprint it, essentially hold your breath for that lap and yeah. then come back and then kind of try and catch your breath after that. But um, dangerous. <laughs> it was it was not easy but i did notice you know it, it helped when i was training so that's really cool i appreciate you sharing that with us boz 
And, um, you know, if, if just to kind of tie it all together, if I could just ask you a few questions here to kind of wrap the show yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, take time. Um, okay. So obviously my book just came out last month. It's called What Should I Do With My Money? And there's a theme that pervades the entire book called MICE, which stands for money, ideology, compromise, and ego. So these are essentially the four motives that we talk about throughout the book that are guiding economies. So I always like to ask folks, and I'd like to ask you, starting first with M for money, what does money mean to you? You know, you're talking to a guy who's completely into the faith right now. So uh, I, I, I'm i not a big money guy anymore. I would like to have money enough, you know, so I don't have to worry about things. But all the stuff, like all the cars and Porsches and everything that I drove, I don't do that crap anymore. It's like, for me, it's uh, such a waste. You know, you think, listen, if, I, if I'm if i a freaking millionaire, millions of dollars, you know, yeah, do it, do whatever you want. But if you're just, you know, making money, you're still able to do it. There's so many ways that you can spend it better. So for me, money is just a security blanket. I just would like to have that. You know, so if God forbid I lose a job or something, I get sick that I have enough money to support myself, the family, you know, that is, that's for me, the goal. For me, it's not, I don't need to be super rich. I don't, I don't, I don't really don't mind. Got it. And then that leads into that next motive, which is I ideology. What's your ideology? What is that that North Star that that guides you? The North Star for me, it's it's that trying to make people understand that they're breathing wrong, and it's very hard because if you would have told me that when I was competing, you go like idiot. I've been doing this since I came out of the womb. Don't tell me how to breathe. I know how to breathe. Yeah, but you're doing it wrong. Oh, you say you're doing it wrong. Well, ninety-five percent is doing it wrong, and the five percent who does it correctly, you know, they probably had breathing classes. Otherwise, they don't do it. You know? So to, to try that, to get the message out, if I'm screaming from my top, it's not just to sell this product. If There's a lot yeah. of products I, I, I promote and, and I don't get a cent for, but they just really help me. And I promote these people. Oh, you shouldn't do that, boss. Why not? It helped me. You know, yeah, yeah, but you don't get money for it. Well, I don't need money for everything. It's a good product. If I would have done this thing and I wouldn't make any money of it, I would still tell all my freaking fighters, use inspiratory muscle training. Because if you read the data, what it's doing for you, you'll be insane not to do it. You see, so my goal, that what I really am focused on, and thankfully people start understanding now that, yes, breathing is a really big thing. And especially for people, meditation, for for everything. And, and, and again, <clears throat> breath, the word breath, it's the same as spirit, right? Spirit in Aramaic or in, in the Hebrew language or Latin is the same as breath. So it has a connection, completely relaxed. If you have an, 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 a sharpshooter, right? Long distance shooter. You think he breathes chest breathing? No, diaphragmatic. No movement whatsoever. Anxiety takes down. The things it does... If you go on the website and you click on the tab science and there's the drop-down menu for published medical journals, you freak out. I mean, it's good for everything. And think about it. It's the number one priority in the body. We strengthen everything, right? We think about what we drink. We think about what we eat. But nobody cares about the first priority in the body. Yeah, how you're actually breathing. Oh, yeah. It's exactly. true. It's true. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm really trying to go to, bring okay. it out to the people, helping people with it. Yes, money is fine. But listen, I don't need to, like I said, yeah. Of all this money. For me, it's like parents who write me with the kids with COPD and asthma and they're unbelievable. It's working. And uh, we have the highest ratings on Amazon also. You know, it's just, so those things are for me very important because it brings health to people. And a really nice thing with it is, hey, I make some bucks on the side as well. 
Yeah. But the priority for me, and this is real. This is not like me trying to be the good guy. No, I had asthma my entire life. I notice people when I had a weak and bad asthma. I notice people out there who have it 365 days a year. What I had only for one week. They literally have to move to like Italy or Spain or the high altitude in order for their lungs. If you can give these people a little relief yeah. by that, dude, sign me up. You know, I, the, the amount of emails that I wrote to parents before this thing was invented about everybody would ask me, but the kids who had the same problem as me with eczema. I, if I say I, I wrote 150 emails just targeted only for that, I really don't think that's a, it's a high number. I think that could be still a low number. So I'm always been busy with helping people. I always yeah. have enjoyed that. And the great thing is now it's my product. So yes, I do make yeah. some money on the side as well. That's awesome. And then the third one, compromise. So compromise can mean a lot of different things. I, there's so much out there that's competing for our time and for our attention. What it, Can you speak to that to, to kind of balance what your day looks like, what you're willing to compromise, and then what you will not compromise on within your day and within your life? Uh, well, anything to reach the goal, right? You you need to think outside the box. It's just very hard because I've been doing this for quite some years now and, and, and try to find a niche to get people understand that they are breathing wrong. So compromising is just the full focus on you cannot be distracted by other things, which is a hard thing for me to do because I'm, you know, I'm also commentating. I have a punching device that I invented. I have other ideas that I want to still make as well that are really good ideas. So, no, I think tunnel vision on, on a product, but only for a few hours a day, because otherwise yep. it drives you insane. Yep. <laughs> you know, you should at least compromise that. And then make sure that you're always in the perfect shape, physically yep. and mentally. You know, if I work out every day and if I eat well and I do all the things right, my body functions at the highest level. So whatever yep. problems are going to come arise, I can deal with those much easier than when I'm not in shape. You know, like these people tell me, yeah, you work out every day, you know, you enjoy working out. I say, I hate it. You hate it? Yeah, I don't want to go to the workout, but it's just a habit. I'll do it Yeah, because I need to. It's yeah. physically good for me. And I also know that if I go to the gym to work out my muscles, but I don't want to go, well, I'm not going to, if I still do it, I'm going to be not only physically stronger, but also mentally stronger because sure. now I'm doing things that you don't want to do. And that, that's the problem that we have in this society right now. Nobody wants to do this anymore. Like, for instance, now I'm doing the Exodus 90, right? It's a Catholic thing. It went 90 days. I'm going to pull it up so that I can read it up because otherwise you it's, it's a lot. So in 90 days, you cannot do certain things. Let me see. Exodus. So you can only take cold, short showers for 90 days. You have to work out every day, get a full night's sleep, no alcohol, no desserts or sweets, no eating in between meals, no sodas or sweet drinks, no televisions, no movies, no televised sports, no video games, no non-essential purchases. You can only use your computer or your phone for your work. And you can only listen to music that lifts the soul. And then you have to practice two fasting days as well. You do that for 90 days and you watch your, uh, your, 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 what is it? Your Instagram, your Twitter, everything goes down 80%. I'm almost never on there anymore because yeah. you realize you're wasting all that stupid time, all trying to get lights and trying to get this and trying this and constantly ping, ping, ping. All my notifications are off only yeah. for a text message and for WhatsApp. That's it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise nothing pops up on my phone. You need focus. What people also need to do is read the book stolen focus. Try to read that by Johan Hari. It <laughs> talks about why we cannot focus anymore. And it's, it's an eye opener. 
Yeah. You know, and, and of course, it's the phone and it's, uh, it's well, it's not the phone, it's the algorithms, right? They, yeah. they find ways, they have thousands of people working on keeping you on that stupid <laughs> phone. And the longer you are on it, the better it is because the more they can sell you. And we all are falling for it. Everybody's it's, doing it. Uh, and they're wasting their time. And since I started doing the Exodus 90, that's, which started five years ago, and we do it yearly, oh man, my life has become so much freer because now I can watch TV. I can watch yeah. televised one day a week. I can, I can break one of the rules. If I want to smoke a cigar, I can do this on a Sunday. If I want to drink a glass of alcohol, well, I cannot smoke the cigar, but I can drink the glass. Of, I cannot do both. You see, or if I want to watch a movie together with yep. my wife, I can do that on Sunday. So yeah, it's, it's very clean. So much. Yeah, uh, it's, the best. I, it's true. And then the, the last one. So again, the last motive in mice is ego. Uh, an ego that can be pride. That's that's who you yep. are. What what role does pride and ego play in your life? How do you control your own ego? It's the hardest thing to control. <laughs> and especially if you're a fighter and you fight yourself in the ring, you know, it's me, 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 me. It's a very hard thing to stay away from. Uh, ego, pride will always get you in trouble. In fighting, in everything. It's the guy who can tone it down and just humility, right? Living yep. in accordance with the truth. That's what humility means. It's not being weak, living in accordance with the truth. Just live in the freaking accordance with the truth. That's what you're doing. <laughs> so egos need to be checked. Pride needs to be checked. If somebody tells you something, like for fighting in the, in the past, don't tell me how to fight. Dude, I got four world titles. You're not going to tell me. And then I realized, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop doing that stupid stuff. Listen to them. Because sometimes, yes, the 80, 90% they're wrong. But there's always this one guy who gives you a really good tip. Yep. So if you put your ego to the side and you still listen to them, then you later, you can always decide if you want to use it or not. So it's, a, but, but pride, and this is something I work on daily. And it's not because I'm saying here, oh, I got four world titles. I got 22. Five, blah, 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 blah. That's not that. That's not it. It's holding the door open for somebody. And that person doesn't thank you. And you get aggravated. That's pride. Somebody backs up his car and he doesn't see you. And you shout and you get angry about it. That's pride. Bringing a coffee to the, everybody in your office. And uh, one person doesn't thank you. And you get aggravated, that's pride. Guys cut you off on the freeway, that's pride. It's all because you all think you're doing it to them, you know? But if somebody doesn't say hi back to you, there's going to be a thousand reasons why they don't say hi back. Really bad morning. Maybe somebody passed away. Maybe somebody's very sick. I mean, you can go on and on and on. Yeah. But no, we we were a pride in the past. But I would say, hey, how are you doing? And they would say anything back and say, I'm good. Thank you for asking. <laughs> You see, that's pride. Yeah, yeah. And once you see those things, those little pride things, and you can scoop them away, which is a very hard thing to do, but I'm working on it really hard, and it's like 90% gone, I would say. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure something else will pop up. Oh, man, you. your life becomes so much more enjoyable. You know, people screaming yeah. at you and then not saying anything back. How hard is that? And especially now with politics, you want to say something back? Don't. Yeah. It's not going to change them. It's not going to yeah. change you. It's not going to do anything good. You know what's good for you? Not to say anything. Let it go. You know, because then you stay calm. You don't get caught up in all these freaking emotions. And that's why we see the riots. And that's, that's all pride, pride, pride. Because all these people who tell you which party you should uh, vote for, that's pride. Because apparently they know best. And you yeah. have to do what they want to do. Get rid of that freaking pride. And that's it. That pride is the number one. Every person in hell is proud. Think <laughs> about that. That's well said. I couldn't say it better myself. And so we always conclude with the lightning round. I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. You just tell me the first thing that comes to mind, and then we'll all get to know Bosrut a little bit better. 
Okay. So first up, this all began as a finance show. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what's the best investment you ever made? You see, I've been very stupid. Well, buying a house, I would say that. You know, really? uh, okay. for, for, for as a physical thing, of course. Uh, for the other <laughs> investment that I ever made, and this is true, this is not a try to smoosh up to my lady, my wife. That was the best investment, and I didn't have to invest anything <laughs> because. But she she will change me. She she really did. If I would have had her, I would have been a crazy guy all over the place. She balanced me out. She predicted everything. She knew I was going to fight in Japan. It was the, the year before it started. She predicted we were going to talk to America. I was going to be in the, in the TV business. I had a show for nine years on TV. She all said that like years ago. I mean, 94, she was That's talking awesome. about. So your house so, and yeah, your wife. Uh, it's very important. Yeah. Perfect. And then on the flip side, the worst investment, if you could think of one. Oh man, that's a hard one. A worst investment. If you can't think of any, that's a good good problem. That's a to good have. thing because you know I learned. You know, it's, it's like that's why I don't gamble. That's why I don't all do these things because those are bad things to do. And if I see something that might not be good, I don't like to gamble my money, so I don't I don't go all the way in with that. I rather keep it in the bank for something that might happen. And okay. Just... And do you have a favorite movie? Yeah, it's a hard one. I would go uh, True Romance. It's the first movie I saw. True with my Romance. Wife. It, it's okay. it, it sound, It's not a romantic movie. It's about Rome. It's a uh, Tarantino movie. It's okay. better than Pulp Fiction. A lot of people. Everybody is in it. Val Kilmer, Brad Pitt. I mean, James Gandolfini. I mean, you name it. Dennis Hopper. Uh, everybody's in that movie. It's a movie that blows you away. A lot of people go, oh, you're watching a chick flick? I go, dude, why is that movie? <laughs> <laughs> it's a badass movie. I haven't seen that one yet. I'll check it out. Uh, and what's your favorite book? Um, a, a book, oh, there's a bunch. A book that really changed me, uh, The Greatest Salesman in the World from Old okay. Mandino. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, a great one. Yeah, takes 10 months to read, though. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's about how to become the best salesman in the world. And then you have one paragraph. He gives you, he gives his apprentice a scroll, so a box of scrolls with a secret in there. And you take a, out uh, one scroll and you have to read. It's like a five or seven minute read. You have to read it first thing when you wake up and then during the day and then before you go to sleep. And what you're realizing is that because you have to do it for 30 days, that after like 10, 12 days, you know the whole thing out of your head. It starts getting inside your head. And it's all these little things about ego and about pride and things you have to watch out for. And there's yeah. a bunch of those things that we already know, but we don't do it. You know, and this was a great way for me. I, I saw Matthew McConaughey. He talked about that book. And I go, well, it's going to take 10 months. Well, might as well start now because, you know, why not? Yeah. And uh, it, it really, it really helped me. I really like that book. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. And do you have a quote that you live by? You know, um, the what did they say? The best life hack of all is just put the work in and go to train, train as hard as you can. Um, Forbes magazine put that quote for me on their website. So oh. <laughs> it's the most basic one. Listen, it's about the person that keeps on going. If you want something and you lash onto it and you stick with it, it will happen. It's only when you see dark times come and you can't do it anymore when people hook away from it, that is wrong. The, the example that I always use is uh, Henry Winkler. I did a movie with him, The Falls. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he he was he went, he, 
I don't know what it was with Ada. He, I believe he came from the East Coast and he was at the West Coast. He was doing auditions and he didn't want to do it anymore. He wanted to go back home yeah. because he was illiterate and he, he has problems with reading. And he, there's a lot of stuff. And he, he just, just didn't want to do it anymore. He was driving to the airport to go uh, go back home. And his management calls. He says, we have an audition for you. He says, no, I'm going to the airport. He says, I think you should do this audition. And it was happy days. Wow. And then he became the false. Man. If he wouldn't have done it. You see, yep. that's what I mean. He could have said no at that moment. Yeah. But something yeah. in him told him to still do it. And he did. And there that's it is. That's unbelievable. Yep. And there it is. The rest is history. And then last couple ones here. Obviously, you've traveled all over the world for, for movies, fighting, etc. What's your favorite destination or vacation? You see, it, that's a hard one because I like France, Italy, Spain. But, you know, I, I we always had a really great time in, in Hawaii. Hawaii, you know, yep. To Maui with the family. That oh, was always beautiful. a really nice place to be. Yep. 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 That's where we did our honeymoon. I'd be right there with you, man. That's that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And last question here. Did you have a childhood hero? And if so, who was it? Yeah, Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. He, he okay. changed my life. You know, that was everything. It was it was uh uh, uh Bruce Jenner, also Bruce Jenner, Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee, but uh, and then I had some fictional ones, of course. I was Spider-Man and Wolverine. Because I had a lot of comics because my uh, my uh, uncle would send me all these comics. And since I was always by myself, you know, because of my skin disease, I was reading a lot of Spider-Man. And Spider-Man was bullied. And Spider-Man, you see, so you make a connection with that. That's probably yeah. why I start swinging trees also. <laughs> and Wolverine, who doesn't want to be Wolverine? <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Yeah, he was one of my favorites for sure. Yeah. Well, Boz, this was awesome. I mean, I, I could talk to you all day. I, I, we had so much to take away from this conversation. Um, so I really appreciate the time. You're very welcome, my friend. Yep. Thank you so much for having me on. I loved it. Yeah, my pleasure. And where can folks find you if they want to keep up with you and, and just get more Boz? <laughs> so uh, Boz with an MMA on Twitter, uh, on, uh, Twitter and on Instagram. And then Facebook is just Boss Root and YouTube is also just Boss, official Boss Root and actually YouTube. But uh, the last, I have, what, two, three more weeks to go on my Exodus 90. So you won't see me post a lot. If I post things, it's for selling things because yes. for business, I might can use my social media, but for the rest, I don't. So, um, and, and, and even after the 90 days, I'm not a big social media guy anymore. I yeah. don't see the point, Yeah, uh, you know, to tell people, oh, I'm thinking about my next move. Who cares about my next move? Right? <laughs> yeah. So I just let it go. Focus a little bit more on the family and myself. Got <laughs> it. Got it. Well, there's a lot of you out there, so I'm sure folks can find you. Uh, but everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. And today we had the pleasure of speaking with the one and only Boz Rutten. We will see you next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. 
Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.